Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Today, we're talking about getting your head around our favorite enteric microbes, E. coli and Salmonella. Why do they have some of the names that they have? Let's shoot from the hip. First question comes from Andrew. Right, so I'm a computer scientist, so I can uh, feign ignorance of all of this. Lee, you work in the enteric branch, so what on earth is an enteric, and why should I be concerned? Whew. Okay, enteric. Enteric means it's in your gut. So just going back to like basic anatomy, you have you have like your whole person, right? You have your you have you have places in your body where bacteria don't belong, like inside your muscles, inside your skeleton, inside whatever, but you but bacteria actually do belong in the area going from inside of you from your from your mouth all the way down to your butt. So bacteria are enteric if they are if they are somewhere in you from your stomach to your intestines to to wherever in between. Does that mean that like clostroides is uh, enteric? Yeah, so it'll you can you can accidentally eat clostroides and then it will be inside of your gut and it will cause enteric disease. So Enteric doesn't necessarily mean like it's naturally there. It can also mean it's an enteric pathogen, which means once it's found in your gut, it'll cause problems. So now there's a new activity. What can we eat to... So now there's a new activity, you know, what can we eat to make the enteric branch have to uh, look at more pathogens? So (laughs) SARS-CoV-2, right? (laughs) Coronavirus. That's found in stool. Is that an enteric? (laughs) Oh, good one. Or is it so just are, mental? Yeah, you can't just like no, eat a sh- thing sh- and sh- call shedding, it Shedding something <laughs> is different is, is a different matter, I think. Yeah, so Man. you could... And there are plenty could, of animals out there that shed what we would consider enteric pathogens that do nothing to the animal. It's, it's just more, more about the transmission. Yeah, you could eat a thing, but your stomach acids might destroy it. So you can't just like eat dirt and call the dirt enteric. <laughs> you, like you'll, your gut will, will, will mash that down and, and it won't cause any problems. And you can eat a virus that causes a respiratory disease, but it'll get broken down in your stomach and it won't cause anything. There are lots of studies about that stuff. So, so I like to say you can't eat COVID actually, because you can eat SARS-CoV-2, but you can't eat the disease. You can't get that disease from eating it. I mean, that, that's a deep philosophical question for me, where what is a pathogen? What is enteric? <laughs> where do you draw the line? Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to, let's say, E. coli, right? The names with E. coli always confuse the hell out of me. Now, I think 
I, I'm on a paper, uh, an e-tech paper, right? And Lee has one as well. Nabil, you're left out, unfortunately, sorry. But I always get confused about e-tech and e-pec and s-tech and e-everything. Like, what on earth do they mean? Do they mean anything? And is it what they look like in the lab? Is it a disease they cause? Is it where they're found? Like, what do all these e-things mean? And are they even e's? Are they, like, there's u-pec, I know, as well, like an s-tech and god i'm confused already maybe so, can you explain i'll jump in with some history and explain why this makes no sense the reason is that these terms existed before we knew anything about bacillus coli or what we call it. so people recognized that there were microbes that cause meningitis in neonates they recognized that there were microbes in form in terms of pathogens, and they were microbes that caused enteric disease and the fun part was it was escherich who said hang on a second these actually might just be the same guy and that's and called that bacillus coli, which we call it Escherichia coli, in his honor. So these terminologies are all based around clinical representation that we've then sort of adopted to talk about a, a microbe or, asp- or different types of microbes. Well, it's kind of the same thing, but not really the same thing. And how are they related to genomics now that we have sequenced probably lots and lots of E. coli? Well, it comes back to your first thing about, you know, is, is an enteric pathogen... Like, you know, because you can take an, a com- common E. coli that lives in your gut and it can cause a urinary tract infection. Is it a, is it a uropathogen then? Yes, but it doesn't have the hallmarks, of, the genomic hallmarks of what you expect a uropathogenic E. coli to have. So you probably wouldn't say it's like a canonical one. Mostly the difference between, they are, it depends on which type you're looking at, uropathogenic E. coli, the the phyla group that's commonly associated with that is very different to those that you'd find for enteric E. coli. But then, yeah, you can have enteric E. coli going in the wrong place and, and causing problems. So it's sort of like, well, yeah. Other definitions like shigatoxigenic E. coli or verotoxigenic E. coli, pretty much nowadays is just the fact that it, it expresses shigatoxin. So, and shigatoxin being mobilized by a prophage, by a phage, as can be just be found in a lot of different E. coli all over the place. So, so there, so that's driven by sort of something else, mobile genetic elements, which isn't tied to a specific clade or anything like that. So, how so does the, it relate to Shigella? If is shigatoxin and Shigella the same as your STEC? One of them is. And I know Shigella is just like a plasmid. It's a coli with a plasmid and. It shouldn't really have its own name, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, so again, Shigella is, it's again the same story where Shigella was something that was classified because it caused dysentery. So, you know, dysentery is like named for that fact. And then people put the dots together and realize, hang on a second, this Shigella thing is more or less a subset of, of what we call E. coli. It, it is very much this problem that we've sort of gone ass backwards and we've talked a lot about the clinical presentation of these and then realizing later that actually that doesn't necessarily line up with the with the genealogy of the microbe. So can you tell from a genome, like if I give you an Ecoli genome, can you tell which one of these it is? Is, is it EPEC, is it ETEC or UPEC oh, or what? Yeah, I mean, I tried a lot during my doctorate to try and make a categorical list. It's a little tricky. 
usually for things like EPEC and terapathogenic E. coli, they have to create attaching and effacing lesions. So that's where the, and that is only really possible by having type three secretion. So you can just look for locus of enterocyte effacement, which encodes type three secretion. And then you're probably gonna be looking at an EPEC. Shigatoxigenic, you find shigatoxin, you're done. Other guys are a little bit, so the difference between say enterohemorrhagic E. coli and shigatoxigenic E. coli is a little bit more tricky because again, enterohemorrhagic E. coli is sort of more about the, the clinical presentation rather than just it having a particular genomic feature. You can find some of them are a little bit more tricky. So the difference between canonical uropathogens to enteric pathogens is hard, but normally you can find certain uh, genomic islands that encode things that help, help an E. coli live in an environment that's very, very like sort of nutrient deficient. So often they have a lot of things relating to to acquiring iron, iron acquisition is because because that's actually quite difficult for an E. coli to do in 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 the urinary tract. So often they have a lot of genes to help them out with that. A lot of things with like lysing cell, other cells, host cells to get 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 access to nutrients and things like that, which the enteric ones probably won't have. So what I've always found very curious is that uh, E. coli has a massive pan genome, and if you look at say any two E. coli, they're going to be usually quite different if you randomly take two and is that because of what you say it it is so good at adapting to different environments that it can take up different pieces of dna maybe that it needs so for for me i think if you take away the usual suspects that we worry about so your 0157h7 you know the guy in the news or you take away your st131 so you take away these 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 sort of very these are quite clonal pathogens that have rapidly expanded reasonably recently, and they're very pretty very static. If you take normal commensal E. coli and you compare them amongst themselves amongst each other, they are recombining like it's nobody's business. Maybe not not on the same level of like Campy or some of the others out there, but they are shunting stuff all over the place, and that allows them to rapidly sort of disseminate a lot of genetic information and also create a lot of diversity. So really the, are you saying kind of the commensals that are maybe in our guts are the ones that are like the harbingers of doom. They're, they're the ones in the background shuffling around all the dangerous stuff that uh, E. coli or the pathogen might need just in case, like it's the, the backup arsenal. Honestly, I have no idea. That is like a thing that I'm always fascinated with and I'm always trying to get my bearings around. I mean, obviously, if you take the, you take the, like the E-Tech stuff, you take the heat label and heat stable toxins out of it. Like, yeah, okay, that's very clear cut, cut and dry. But if you think about a problem like the microbe has to adhere to host epithelium, how is those systems passed around that's not clear to me, actually. It does seem to be stratified, but then it also seems to be just juggled as, as any old thing. A lot of what we see in that regard can be yeah, pulled in from commensals and sort of remix. And I mean, I think the, the classic example everyone remembers in E. coli for like in recent terms for this remixing is obviously the, the European 104 outbreak from, you know, it's what, like 10 years now, I think. 
So, I mean, that one was, that wasn't a commensal, that was, but that was an enteroaggregative E. coli that has a completely different pathogenesis that picked up a sugar toxin and became something else. So STEC plus EAX became that. So this, that remixing thing, and we got to see that firsthand uh, of that. And that's the kind of thing E. coli seems to like to do. But, but probably quite quietly most of the time, we don't notice it or we haven't dug into it that much. So how does MLST, like if you take seven gene MLST, how does that relate to all of these different names? No, it doesn't for the most part. I'll just, I'll just be, yeah. I wouldn't take the ST, the STs for things that are very clear cut, like a one five, seven. Yeah, that's fixed. But if you pick a random, random bug, then yeah, your ST is not going to be necessarily a good predictor of, of its pathology. We like we like to shoehorn all of our phylogenetic methods with all of these pathogenic methods, but these pathogen types, but they, that doesn't work, does it? No, I mean, uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work. MSC doesn't is not like a good predictor for that. And and plus the added bonus, I mean, this is taking the host angle out of it as well. That introduces its own thing. Like you have so many publications upon publications that talk about sugar toxigenic E. coli, for instance, I'm sure with the E-Tech as well, that it's it's in a person, it, the person's healthy, nothing happens. And then the next person has got like serious systemic sequelae. Like it's just, and it doesn't make any sense. You're like, why, what happened? So that angle out of it, the, yeah, they, the genotype doesn't necessarily line up with the pathotype very well. Okay. So, it, this has always confused me, but Salmonella is quite closely related to E. coli. You know, there's what 150 million years between them, but it seems to operate very differently than because you've got these serovars and, and whatnot, and they seem to be much more stable compared to E. coli. Is it really though? I mean, if you look at the literature, they'll they'll always point out that there's over 2,500 serovars or sero like antigenic types of salmonella are out there. That's a lot of variation. I think if you do like a sort of ANI measurement, there's, uh, E. coli might be more diverse than salmonella, but it's, but it's within the same ballpark, I think, if you if you sort of counted the number of pairwise, the number of SNPs between one and one side of the population to the other. But I guess within a serovar, you have, it does seem to be quite well conserved, say, on a some typhi, you know, you're talking about 95% at least similarity or vastly greater, actually probably 97% easily. That for me, I think is, that for me, I think is the, the magic part of Salmonella is when you get a, the, the top 20 serovars that show up in the clinic and you look at those, they all have exactly what you're saying. They have these very, very delineated, very stratified, streams like you make them on a tree or whatever at some point in the other all of these just decided to diversify and then just stay put and and then when you look at it on a, on a clinical perspective you go well salmonella is quite samey i mean there's all these separate very clear buckets of dublin and typhi and typhi miriam and the paratyphes and then you sort of go oh well they're, they're all this is this very like static boring boring bug but then when you step out of those and then you start talking about the guys who are sort of on the fringes, the ones you find in rivers, the ones you find in reptiles, the ones you find in like all over the place, they start getting very messy and they start looking more like E. coli in terms of this sort of moving, shuffling all sorts of genomic stuff around. 
There's a whole whole thing of research from from the people behind ANI on the continuity of species like that. It's kind of interesting to me. Um, Costas Constitutus from Georgia Tech has this whole thing about ANI, and he can find, you know, two different kinds of E. coli, and you know, and 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 I've seen this this slide deck a few different times that he can find like the next closest bacterium, the next closest and keep sequencing and get closer and closer and closer with ANI and where's the species delineation. And he goes um, really well into depth on that. I'm not going to go into depth on that because I cannot represent him, but I think it's an interesting um, line of research. Yeah. The odd thing with salmonella is, is it doesn't, there seems to have been an event at some point where a lot of these Saravars just sort of rapidly expanded and then stayed put. And as even though we, we, no matter how much we sequence, we can't seem to pin down, we can't see, we don't see this graduation so much in Salmonella. So is that, like it's more fuzzy, this graduation. Is that because we're so focused on pathogens and not on commensals and we're just kind of missing huge branches of the tree of life of Salmonella because you know, like we're 99% is all on like say typhi, typhimerium and virtually nothing is on all these weird and wonderful things that you find in soil and in random animals. Yeah, I think there's there's a horrible bias of of salmonella genomics, obviously the bulk of it being typhimerium, enteritidis, and then I think typhi after that. And, they, and they're making up between the those three cerevas that's making up like maybe two thirds of the all of the salmonella genomes out there. So that sample bias is obviously a problem, but I think also we can't see that far back into the past because all of the extant one, all of the missing links are gone. They're dead. They're not. They're, they're all disappeared, and we just see these sort of branches, these offshoots of these um, now reasonably stable cerevars, and we can no longer impute what was the chain of events that caused them to to appear in the first place. Or we need to go and do a lot more sequencing. We can. I'm all for more sequencing. Except, but, you know, stamp yeah. collecting in, in uh, weird and wonderful places. Can we talk about Nabil's viral tweet? <laughs> Speaking of stamp collecting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that was funny. What did you want to specifically mention on that? I don't even know. I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> well, we'll put it in the show notes. It's one to check out. <laughs> you had on, you had on there though. I think one of them was stamp collecting. Yeah. So this is it's, this is a knockoff of an XKCD comic, which talks about the types of scientific papers. And I made a specialized, just we rewrote over it to write a version that says microbial bioinformatics papers. And one of the type of papers you always see is we sequence a bunch of stuff, but it's not stamp collecting. We made up the biology after we sequenced it. <laughs> is that on there too no i didn't i didn't have anyone that was, like, that's a good caption <laughs> no the closest one i had to that was uh we ran beast for 92 days and then we chose the relaxed clock model because the tree was pretty someone someone who i will not name instant messaged me today and said that it it hit too close to home to her most of most of those those headings are inspired by stuff I've done, so I'm I'm picking the Mickey more out of myself than anyone else. It's not I, I'm I not think specifically all, targeting anyone. I, think... I I accidentally rewrote bed tools with <laughs> with uh, a pro 
I, I used a pro module that basically does an array int span or something. And it basically does what bed tools does. And I like rewrote bed tools, I think. I don't know which is worse, rewriting bed tools or me writing more MLST folders. I've done that too. Yep, 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 <laughs> yep. They're both bad. Yeah, yeah. I reviewed a few of those papers actually because of our uh, MLST color paper, you know, they keep sending them to me and I keep going, Jesus, <laughs> do, I, do I really want to, to allow the world to have yet another MLST color? It's all right. It's, it's, it's either that or they'll start writing SARS-CoV-2 pipelines or something. Oh, we, we all need those. Yeah. We need another one. Yeah. I'm guilty. Okay. I guess we don't have to go too, too deep into it. It was just really funny. Props to you. Well, any more questions you're you're stuck with, Andrew, with with SQL and Salmonella? I I don't know. I just give up. I think we should just long read sequence everything, every Salmonella and Ecola we can get our hands on, and that'll solve everything. It's not stamp collecting. It's like high quality, premium stamp collecting. Yeah. Yeah, but I think you're never. We're never going to get rid of the the naming of Salmonella seraphas as a thing. No, I suppose we need more informatics methods to be able to replace the lab methods because people aren't going to give up the lab methods until they, the phenotypic methods, until they can actually, you know, replicate those in silico. It's and getting there. I think there's, I think there's probably, PHE's put off enough publications of it and then the Canadian public health have also put a fair few that make the case pretty strongly that you like can more or less get the same, you can get the same information from the genome rather than doing serotyping. Yeah, there's EC Typer and Seek Zero and Sister. What are the other guys? Those, I, I mean, those ones. are the main ones. Those are the ones people should be using. From John Nash's group, is it? The Sister, yeah. And I think it's Deng for the Sex Zero. Yeah, it's Deng. You know, the, the disclaimer is that I work with him. I'm, a, I'm an adjunct professor with Deng. But if you're wondering who decides what the Cerevar names are, it's 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 a cheap bester. Yeah, what happened? For a while, they were giving them like crazy names. It were colons and God knows what. They were like 30 characters long. They got rid of like Dublin and simple things like that. What happened? So, there was, so what happened was, I can't remember when they decided it, but they decided that Cerevas, so the thing is, is antigenic formulas do not describe Salmonella very well outside of subspecies one, out of S enterica enterica. So they decided like, we're not going to, and there's too many of them. There's too many random combinations of these antigenic formulas. And then when you look at them, they don't have anything. The ones that share it don't have anything in common. So the, def, the designations are meaningless. So they decided not to name those outside of any of those out of uh, side of subspecies one. So you're supposed to refer to, I mean, there are people who still refer to them with some of them did get named and people still use those names, but you're, I think you're supposed to use the antigenic formula, which describes the, yeah, the antigens that the, that the, that, you know, the microbe reacts with. So that's as bad as a computer scientist saying, yeah, please use the MD5 hash as the the name please basically yeah it is it's not a very it's not a very informative thing but the thing is is like you're not really supposed to use that the serology doesn't help you it's like it's like stop using this we're going to make it more difficult because we don't want you to use it it's not going to help you trust us 
we all like a good name. It's it's a lot easier to talk to people and say, listen, now, you know, you, you've you got a salmonella Kentucky, you know, you didn't get in Kentucky Fried Chicken, but, uh, you know, you definitely have that <laughs> server. Yeah, you can make a game and see if your home city or home country has a name, has a server named after it. It's, it's quite amazing how many uh, different places are in there. Oh, yeah, like Dublin represented. <laughs> Isn't that the one associated with cows? Yeah, I think, is there an Atlanta? I don't know. I know that oh, all the people is. around me are going to scream. Oh, yeah. Oh, there was. What, there which was one? in Atlanta. It's called Mississippi now. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a there's Mississippi. I don't think there's one after my home. No, there's no. Oh yeah, there's one in Brisbane. So my hometown gets represented as well. So that's good. Awesome. So this is simply to represent where these were isolated. It doesn't mean these originated from there or anything. It's the same problem as the SARS-CoV stuff. Yeah. But then more complicated. You get like typhi, paratyphi, paratyphi A, B, C. What on earth has gone on there? Are oh, they man. different? What are they? What's the difference between A, B, C, and D? Are they very closely related genomically, or are they quite random? This is this is the classic like software engineering problem of sort of making it up as you're going along. So when they designed the scheme, so this is Kaufman and White back in the oof, turn of last century, middle of last century. They 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 looked at astrology like yeah it makes sense, and then they tried to come up with names that that were descriptive, that described the type of disease it caused, you know? So cholera suis is like, okay, it causes cholera in pigs. It, it kind of doesn't really, but it, but there you go. And then typhi murium and, you know, typhi in mice and so on. And the paratyphi. So the paratyphi is like, it causes typhoid fever, like symptoms, but it's not typhi. So it's not really typhoid fever. So paratyphi. So, okay. And then you have A, B, and C and so on. But, but then you kind of run out of that pretty quickly and so then they're like, well, now what do we do? <laughs> so they picked another system. And so they go, oh, we'll just name it after the place that it's from some of the time. Or we'll name it after, oh, the abortus equi is another one that explains what it does, how what kind of disease it presents, causes abortion in horses. At least they're not naming them after people, because I saw like in, uh, in Anopheles that, and Plasmodium, often they will name them after like particular people who lived 100 years ago. Like Bill Collins eye and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, do you really want to be associated with like this deadly pathogen or vector? I might be wrong, but the only reason they probably didn't do that was because that kind of naming is for species. And they don't want to, they, they, they're very careful with this, with that. There's a lot of problems with this because of, of having Saravas considered as a species because they're not. I did notice that people working in Salmonella get very annoyed if you do italics for the server and name. They get yes. really passionate No, about it's it. a big, big no-no. It's a big no-no because it's not, it isn't a species or subspecies. And and the problem was, is that they used to do that. So it used to be S. cholera suis, like all italics. And it's like, it's not, then they demoted it down, cholera suis down to just being a server term. Yeah, no, but that's a bugbear for me. So I, I also get annoyed when the the nomenclature isn't right because and then doc, hmm? i have a whole document somewhere from people i work with at cdc on how to name salmonella appropriately and i lost it to there's a, yeah there's a cdc paper there's a cdc white paper that just explains this is what you're supposed to do which i which i thumb back to sometimes when i'm writing up just to make sure i haven't accidentally gotten mixed up again <laughs>
it's complicated it's complicated you gotta it's 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 horrible it's the world it's these really really long names salmonella enterica subspecies enterica saravatifimurium and just say okay The S enterica is italicized. The subspecies is not. The second enteric is italicized. The cerevatifimurium is not. And you're like, <laughs> you just you you get you get like RSI just just trying to use your just trying to use the hotkeys of the italics. Grand. Well, I'm happy with that. Okay, so do we call it a day there. Yeah. Yeah, and on, the, on that bombshell. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Salmonella Cerovar Microbinfi podcast. We've been talking about E. coli and salmonella and all the wonderful naming schemes that have been created as we grapple with these enteric pathogens. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.